Hi, everybody. I'm Sabri Beneshore from Marketplace. And I'm Tim Fernholtz from Quartz. And this is Actuality. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. That is Republican frontrunner Donald Trump kickstarting the immigration debate for the presidential election in 2016 in his uniquely special way. Since then, he has released a detailed reform plan. Make Mexico pay for a border wall. Which I'm sure they will be eager to do. (laughs) Deport every undocumented immigrant. Easy. And even end birthright citizenship in the U.S. And it's a cocktail of populist rhetoric that is turning the Donald trademark into this generation's Pat Buchanan. He's plugging into the raw economic angst of middle America and connecting it directly to immigrants arriving in the U.S. land of opportunity. So this week, we are going to examine this connection. Are immigrants, authorized or not, behind slow-growing wages for U.S. workers? Or are they part of the solution to the U.S. economic woes? Or maybe they're just neither. Maybe it's just the world we live in. But this uh, debate, this touchstone, is not limited to the right either. Uh, progressive darling Bernie Sanders challenging for the Democratic presidential nomination has also criticized immigrants for taking American jobs. Uh, But spoiler alert, while this stuff is politically potent, it's not exactly totally factual. Who would have thought politicians are exaggerating something? And when things get exaggerated, sometimes you want to just get down to the numbers. And so we went and we found a demographer. So we talked to Jeffrey Passell, senior demographer at the Pew Research Center, to get a sense of just the lay of the land of undocumented immigrants right now. One of the first things we asked him, because even though we're talking about statistics, these are actually people, is to get a sense of who are the undocumented immigrants coming to the U.S. Well, Mexicans are by far the largest group. Depending on what year we're looking at, they're from a bit over 50 percent to almost 60 percent of the total. He went on to tell us that the number of undocumented immigrants in the U.S. hasn't grown much recently. It peaked in 2007 at 12.2 million, and since 2009, it's actually been holding steady at 11.2 million. So the days of these vast waves of immigrants coming in are technically over. Uh, Which raised the question, of course, of what changed. Uh, Why were so many uh, immigrants coming over the border without authorization before, and why are there fewer coming now? We think they're coming largely for economic opportunity. During the, the Great Recession, there were actually more unauthorized immigrants leaving the country than coming into the countries. Uh, And here's a big issue that we're going to dive into uh, at further depth later on. But we wanted to ask Jeffrey, what is the impact of immigrant workers on U.S. jobs and wages? There's a there's they're taking our jobs (laughs) mentality. And the research certainly doesn't support that idea. There seems to be no direct impact on employment of natives and jobs. In fact, he said growth actually requires immigration. There, there seems to be a need for additional labor and additional workers to keep the U.S. workforce growing over the next 15 or 20 years. So now we have a grasp on sort of the share of the U.S. population that are undocumented immigrants. And we want to keep expanding further and look at the kind of policy and legal context that has led the undocumented population to be created in the first place. So we got in touch with Doris Meissner. Uh, She was an immigration official during the Clinton administration, and now she heads the U.S. Immigration Policy Project at the Migration Policy Institute. Hi, Doris. Thanks for joining us. 
Thank you. So Donald Trump's big policy demand is that we get Mexico to build a huge wall on the U.S.-Mexico border. You often hear a lot of wall talk on this issue. What does that mean? Does it make sense to build a wall there? So a third of the border is already fenced. Beyond the areas that are currently walled, where there is vast open territory and very little illegal crossing, much of that land is in the hands of private landowners. So you would have to take land. You know, some people are going to say, well, two-thirds of the borders is not enough. Why don't we buy up that land and put up a border over the whole thing? Well, you know, you can always ask for more resources. But the question is whether you get any real return on those resources. We've made, as a country, dramatic investments in immigration enforcement. We're now spending more on immigration enforcement by about a quarter than we spend on all other federal criminal law enforcement, which includes the FBI, the Secret Service, the DEA. It's Do you know how much money that is by any chance? Yes, I know that that's about $18 billion a year. It's more than $200 billion since 9-11. And it's showing results. The numbers of apprehensions of people coming across the southwest border goes down every year. I think most experts would agree that there are lots of other things we need to do before investing more in walls on the southwest border in order to solve our immigration problems. Just to sort of represent the sort of feelings uh, of people who say, you know, build more walls, I, I think what people are concerned about is they see that undocumented immigrants do continue to cross. So they assume, well, there must be just some place that's unprotected that they just are all going through. Well, large numbers are uh, relatively large numbers are no longer coming in. Yes, we have a large unauthorized population in the United States. Most of that population has lived here for many years. More than 60 percent, between 60 to 70 percent, have been in the United States for more than 10 years. Oh, wow. They are deeply embedded in our workforce. This is a very complicated social and economic phenomenon, and it comes from significant differences in living standards between two countries, but it also comes from a demand for workers in the United States that has existed, doesn't exist as much anymore as it did in the early 2000s and in the 1990s when the large share of people were coming at very much greater rates. Can but, you talk about how that demand has changed? Because that seems to be the driving force of this narrative is the, the work that's available here. Is there less work for undocumented or, or for low-skilled immigrants in the U.S. now than there was a decade ago? There is less work available. It really crashed with the recession. The economy is picking up since, but it is not picking up in the same way. Agriculture is a pretty stable workforce. It is about half of the people in the agriculture industry are, are unauthorized. Construction has been a very important employer. That has not rebounded in the way that it existed prior to the recession. The service industries, hospitality, tourism, we could have a system of laws. We could have an updated 
modern immigration system that makes it possible for people to come to the United States legally for labor market reasons. But we have not reformed our system. The last time we did a reform of our legal immigration system was in 1990. You want to have a system that is far more flexible than what we have today, that is market sensitive, that can fluctuate with the ups and downs. But until we get to the table and are able politically to do immigration reform, we can't get there. All right. Um, Doris Messner of the Migration Policy Institute, also a former Clinton immigration official. Doris, thanks so much. You're certainly welcome. Nice to talk to you. So one less than flexible part of the U.S. immigration infrastructure is the guest worker program for bringing in foreign labor to work on farms. Every year around the time of the harvest, we hear about labor shortages on U.S. farms. They say there aren't enough immigrants to pick the crops, whether that's undocumented immigrants or legal guest workers, and that they can't pay American workers enough to pick the crops and still be economical. And that's even, they say, with wages rising 5% since 2010, uh, that's adjusted for inflation, and with last year in 2014 bringing in 116,000 seasonal workers, uh, mostly from Mexico, uh, that's out of about 600,000 farm laborers across the country. But not everybody believes that these farms are being upfront about their labor shortages. John Carney is a columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Uh, John, you don't think they're being straight with us about their employee problem, right? Definitely not. And it's true. We do get this every year. You see year after year, right around August, uh, reports start to roll in of crops rotting in the field, Melons going unpicked, apples being left to wither on the apple tree. But you may remember the severe fruit shortages we've had in recent years. Or maybe you don't remember that because it just hasn't happened. There's not any real evidence of any sort of farm labor shortage. Rather than you know changing what America's immigration policies need to be, I don't think there's a problem here at all. What do you say about these farms who say that for certain crops, they just can't hire any Americans to do the job, even at double minimum wage? And I'd, like, you, well, I'd like to find out where those are. So, for instance, if you look at California's production of lemons, it's up 5%. Avocado production from a year ago is up 10%. This isn't fruit withering in the fields. This is fruit that's actually being sold we're not leaving things behind. These are the kind of products, by the way, that farmers often say they can't get people to pick. Meanwhile, prices for these things are actually decreasing. You also can look just at what we pay farm workers in America. This year, wages for field workers are expected to rise about 1%. That's less than inflation. If we had a worker shortage, shouldn't it be going up higher? So across the United States... Uh, field workers get around $11.34. In California, that's higher. It's $11.60. And if you look at what the average retail sales associate in Los Angeles makes, $10.39. So in other words, you're asking people to do backbreaking work, often without any benefits or insurance, for a dollar more than they would get selling pants at the Gap. A couple years ago, when there was you know, very high unemployment, I thought it was 
absolutely ridiculous for farmers to be claiming that there was a labor shortage. But, but doesn't that kind of get at their complaint if during the worst recession ever when unemployment was really high, they still were complaining about not finding workers? And there's a uh, there's a report out from the Center on Global Development, um, you know, that they looked at this situation in North Carolina in 2011 where they advertised uh, some 6,500 jobs and got only 245 applications out of hundreds of thousands of people unemployed there. So, I mean, doesn't that suggest that maybe there is actually a disconnect? No, it suggests that you have to pay them the market prevailing wage. That's what, uh, if you are not willing to pay people the wage they demand to perform the job that you want, you're, you're of course not going to get enough people. As often you're paid per piece, in other words, by the weight of what you pick. And when you begin your job, you're often not very good at it. So you earn even less. So one reason when they say, oh, well, we can't attract uh, Americans to do this job, it's because when they, you know, the first day they show up, they're not, they're not getting $11.34 an hour. They might be getting $5.34 an hour while they try to learn how, what the most efficient way to pick these things are. Farms already pay higher than minimum wage. So shouldn't that attract people regardless of borders? Well, I'm not sure it is limited by the number of people who can come in. I do not believe that even if you had 100% open borders, you would be attracting many more people to American farms. Why is this? Because there are, if you bring in a million people, there are, we will have many jobs that they can do that will not involve farms. This is one reason, by the way, that, that the farm lobby does not actually advocate for open borders. What they advocate for is a controlled border where workers are obligated to work on the farms. In other words, they want right. a special visa that says, yes, you can come in, but only if you work for us. So they're not interested in competing in the free market. Uh, they are interested in competing in a restricted market where they have unique access to the labor of these people. Right. And that, and that also, of course, severely limited, limits your bargaining power, right? When the threat is, you work for me or you get sent home, of course, you're not, you know, how do you ask for a raise at that point? The argument is that if wages are raised, then farmers here will not be able to compete with low-wage-fueled farmers abroad, right? And so, and so the two options presented in that scenario are keep the farms here in the U.S., take advantage of transplanted foreign labor that's willing to work for, for lower wages, or raise the wages here and move the farms outside of the U.S., Two things about that. One, we're just coming off of several years of record profitability of, of American farms. Uh, so I don't buy the argument that farms cannot be profitable when in the United States when paying a market wage. Farmers have done very well. Second, I don't think the option of bringing in low-wage uh, low low uh, laborers from abroad really works. Because again, uh, unless you lock them in somehow to the farm economy, they'll seek jobs elsewhere. Well, yeah, well, that's what the guest worker does. It does lock the, the Exactly. Does, and lock and I, I think that is a, you know, it, it, it's a subsidy to the farms. Hmm. It is, uh, I, I think it's profoundly uh, anti-freedom. Got it. That's John Carney. He's a columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks, John. All right. Thank you. All right. So 
let's talk about workers as a whole. Let's talk about immigrants as a whole and their effect on wages in general. So I think what makes this hard to understand sometimes is thinking about the economy as a not zero-sum game. But in fact, economists who are looking at this issue compare it to women coming into the workforce after World War II. More workers didn't mean fewer jobs for men. It meant more production all around, raising prosperity, all that good stuff. So when we look at how immigrants affect the workforce, uh, there's a bunch of studies. I've picked out two of them. One is by Heidi Shireholtz, who's now the chief economist of the U.S. Department of Labor. She did this when she was at the Economic Policy Institute. She found that from 1994 to 2007, which is when we had the highest amount of undocumented immigration in the U.S. recently, uh, all workers' wages went up a big 0.4 percent. Now, is that in general or is that specifically connected with immigration? That is her attempt to isolate immigration's effect on wages. Um, And there is some downer news. Um, That 0.4% is the average of all workers. For male U.S.-born workers with less than a high school education, it's negative 0.2% over that 13-year period. Uh, One other study to compare it to is from 2012 by Gianmarco Ottoviano and Giovanni Perry. They're uh, economists at LSE and UCSD, respectively. They found between 1990 and 2006 that all workers' wages had gone up by 0.6% thanks to immigration. Uh, And even people with less than a high school education saw their wages go up 1.5%. And it makes sense when you think about it because these people are not just workers. They're also consumers. They're buying services. They're allowing businesses to exist. There's knock-on effects and ramifications. But it does look like among a small group of people with less than a high school education, there's a very slight downward pressure on wages from undocumented immigrants. In some of these studies. They don't all agree, but yes. So I guess what we can say is when you complicate this story, uh, it's a lot less of a us-versus-them story, which is maybe what you're being sold on the campaign trail. So keep an eye on that. And now for something completely different. At Quartz, we report on what we call surprising discoveries. They are the items in the news that make you raise your eyebrows. Today's surprising discovery is that I am a really good whistler. Uh, It's a well-known fact that I can whistle quite effectively. Hmm. Um, No, that's not true. But today's surprising discovery comes to us from The New Scientist, which reports that in Turkey there's an ancient whistling language that allows villagers to communicate across valleys and mountains up to five kilometers. Do we know what it sounds like? I can tell you what it sounds like. This is the mayor who's whistling. Kujiku, uh, come and break the fast with us this evening. Kujiku answers from across the valley, I will come. Uh, the mayor replies, come break the fast this evening repetitively. But now he has, we'll do it in the cafe. But wait, are you making are you making that chicken dish that I hate again? Because I really hate it when you put all that parsley on there. <laughs> okay. And hey, this is also important in ways that are unrelated to long-distance whistling. Uh, scientists, as they often do, are studying this. And it turns out these whistlers use their right brain just as much as their left brain in uh, understanding and producing these uh, epic whistles, uh, which is uh, upending theories that only the left lobe of the brain was used for language interpretation. Well, also, if that is language that can talk about where to break the fast in the cafe and everything, then doesn't that make you think that, like, parakeets are having very involved conversations? Oh, man, their brains are so tiny. Like, a parakeet's brain is, like, the size of your thumb. Mm. Well, then dolphins. Sure. 
And that's all the time we have. If you want to know more about undocumented immigration, why your wages are falling, or anything else happening in the economy today, check out marketplace.org and qz.com. Including for high speech. High. High. High speech. High. High pitched shrieking shrieking communication. communication. Actually, next next week's podcast is going to be all in Turkish whistling. FYI. Next uh, while you're in court, sign up for our daily brief. It is the perfect way to start the day. And, by the way, uh, we would love to know what you think of the podcast. We've got some excellent uh, feedback so far, so keep it coming. Uh, people had a lot of mixed feelings about the fur episode. We hear you. We hear you, fur enemies. <laughs> yeah. Um, what you like and what you don't like, what topics we should take on. Um, email us at mpqz at marketplace.org or leave a message for us at 802-430-6779. Holler at us on Twitter. Sabri is at SabriTree and I'm at Tim Fernholtz with a Z. Uh, Thank you to Jake Gorski for making our theme song. Thank you to our producer, Claire Tennisketter, for making our production. And thank you to our overlords at Marketplace and Quartz. You've been listening to Actuality, the Marketplace Quartz podcast. We'll be back soon with more stories from around the world. See you then.